It is a pleasure to, uh, to be here this morning. I want to talk to you about uh, an English man this morning named William Wilberforce. I am not English. I think I'm culturally English. When I was at Yale, I was an English major. Um, and, uh, you know, you sort of feel like that's the mother country. When I go to England, I, I feel like it's sort of where I'm from culturally. But I'm really, my parents, I'm a first-generation American. Uh, my parents came over from Europe in the, in the 1950s separately, separate countries. My uh, dad came from Greece, hence my surname Metaxas. My mom came from Germany, hence my deep love for Siegfried and Roy. You, you know about that, right? I think I've used that joke before, but, you know, it just really, uh, it's just you can't leave that out. Very important. So I'm not English, but uh, I am, uh, I says, culturally um, from England. And I want to talk this morning about the life of William Wilberforce. Um, the reason I want to do that is because what Rich was saying is I have been spending the last number of months working on a biography of William Wilberforce. I've never written a biography before. Have you? Yeah, I didn't think so. So you need to back off, okay? Don't judge me because it's not so... Until you've written a biography, it's easy to judge. But let me tell you, it's, it's, it's tough. It's kind of tough. Um, but yeah, I got this phone call from this publisher. That, you know they're making a movie about the life of William Wilberforce. Now, hardly anybody knows who Wilberforce is. How many people here know who William Wilberforce is? I'm just curious, actually. Okay, you need to leave. Yeah, no, this is going to... Because I'm going to go over some stuff you know. But, um, no, actually, it's fascinating. I, I mean, the, the problem with William Wilberforce is there's so much stuff to talk about. It is just extraordinary. They're making a movie... It's going to come out a year from now, or actually less than a year from now, to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade in England. Uh, not the abolition of slavery, but the slave trade. The trade in slaves was abolished in 1807. So 200th anniversary is going to be celebrated. There's going to be a movie made by the same people who made the Narnia movie. How many folks saw the Narnia movie? How many people heard of C.S. Lewis? If you're here this morning, if you're here this morning, would you raise your hand? Because I just want to make you feel good. Okay, so... Um, so if you didn't raise your hand, I know you're here, okay? You can't lie. Um, but I, I, um, the, the people, the, the, the Walden people who made the Narnia movie are, have made, I've already seen it, a, you know, $30 million biopic, big deal thing with Albert Finney starring in the role, I mean, uh, co-starring is John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. You've heard of Amazing Grace? How many people have heard of Grace? How many people are familiar with the adjective amazing? Come on. All right. That's great. You guys are awesome. Uh, you didn't tell me about this crowd. Uh, so, so this movie already exists. I've seen the movie. I was, I was privileged to be in one of those early screenings of the movie. You think you're so cool because, like, I'm in the early screening of the movie. I've, oh, I've seen it, yeah. And uh, I actually went... This is weird. I also went to an early screening of The Passion. Um, how, many heard of you, how many of you have heard of The Passion, right? Um, I, I actually went to an early screening. This is weird. This is weird. This is no lie. I drove Peggy Noonan to a screening of The Passion at Kathy Lee Gifford's house. I, isn't that impressive? I got to tell you, I was like, hey, whoa, take a picture. It was like, it was like yeah, Celebrity Day. It was pretty cool. And, um, and, and this is no joke. When I went to the little private screening in Manhattan for the Wilberforce movie, like about six Eight weeks ago, Kathy Lee Gifford was there. No, no kidding. And I said to her, Kathy, we've got to stop meeting this way. You know, it's like every time I go to a private screening, you're there. What's up with that? You know, our, our spouses are going to talk. It's weird. But yeah, it was like very strange. But I went to the screening in this movie, and the movie, uh, it's very historically accurate. It's subtitles, and it's all in Aramaic, even though this is 200 years old and in England. 
No, I'm sorry. That was the passion. I always get them mixed up. I'm sorry. Uh, but, uh, but there were some controversial scenes in here that the New York Times were freaking out about. The, um, they had to remove. There was a controversial um, car chase at the end of this. And it's just, that's historically inaccurate. And people are like, no, you're not going to get away with that. You need to, the lady truckers and the whole ending, they had a whole Hollywood kind of ending. They're like, no, 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 this is 1807. You need to cut that out. So they cut that out. But I, 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 uh, the version I saw, they had cut that out, but they still had the, uh, the soundtrack. Was still, you could still hear the, the squeal of tires in Aramaic because it's like it was a really, it was the sound, it was an old soundtrack. But I saw the movie, and I have to say that, you know, William Wilberforce, it's one of the, he's one of these people who it is utterly... In, uh, it's unexplainable how many people don't know who he is because it's like never having heard of Napoleon or Lincoln. It's, he's that level of, you know, wow, like the pantheon of greats. You know, there's busts of uh, Dante and, and Socrates and, uh, you know, the, these big people. He's, William Wilberforce is one of those people, but, but somehow events have conspired to, what, what time did I start? Because you're not going to get me on this one now. Yeah, okay. Oh, I got your watch. But what time did I start? It's not telling me. Um, so, so um, when I started to look into who William Wilberforce was, I thought this is very, very weird that we don't know who this is because this is one of the giants. I mean... Lots of people that you know, that you think of as amazing people, thought of Wilberforce as a giant. Lincoln. Have you heard of Lincoln? Uh, if you've got a penny. It's, uh, if you got a, after 1909, if you've got a penny before that, it's an Indian. But uh, Lincoln, whom you've heard of, uh, looked at Wilberforce as like a hero. Frederick Douglass looked at him as a hero. Thomas Jefferson uh, looked at him as a hero. He was like a giant. And we've kind of forgotten about him because we've forgotten about the abolition of slavery. We kind of figure like, well, you know, that's, that's ancient history. But it's really not. And um, Wilberforce was, uh, he was the man, you know. Like uh, a lot of people uh, are required to do things like abolish slavery. But if you hadn't mentioned one guy who God used miraculously, miraculously, and I don't have time to tell you, but it was extraordinary. Uh, so the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade is going to be this spring. Uh, they wanted a book to come out with it. They called me up. It's a kind of weird, long story. Uh, uh, and I ended up having the privilege of writing the biography of William Wilberforce. So I have been steeped in the world of William Wilberforce, and there is so much there, there's no way to communicate it. I, I, I didn't even have time in the book to communicate it. You could just write 10 books about his life, and you could write at least one book about why our generation doesn't know who he is because it's it is crazy. It's like having never heard of you know, as they say, Teddy Roosevelt. Who? Uh, it's important. These are some figures that are important, and he just is is a giant. And when I studied his life, I want to tell you uh, really uh, the quick story of his life, and then pull some stuff out for you. But England in the late 18th century, we would never think of this. We think of, you know, tea and crumpets and powdered wigs and, and uh, civil society. We think of them as being very, they were very Christian and very moral and very, you know, uh, absolutely not true. It was a brutal, pagan, super decadent, super selfish culture. It was not a Christian culture on any level. It was not a good culture. It was a, it was a, it was a very um, depraved 
kind of culture. A lot like actually like ancient Rome, um, their values, they had a, basically a pagan secular worldview. But they had this patina of Christianity over the whole thing. So they thought of themselves as a Christian nation. And, you know, it's kind of like if you're in, in Italy or you're in France, or oh, it's a Christian nation, lots of churches, everybody, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Muslim, I, I guess I believe in God, so I'm a Christian. You know, it was that level of deep Christianity, right? And um, so basically... Wilberforce was growing up into this world. When he was nine years old, he, he was actually extremely wealthy. His family was very wealthy. They lived in Hull, and his grandfather was this sort of patriarch of the city. And so he was like a little big shot. And at age nine, his father died, and his mother got very, very ill, and he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle. Now, the aunt and uncle were even more wealthy, and they lived in London. They had a a home in St. James's, and they had a, a home in Wimbledon, a country home, extremely wealthy. The, um, uh, his aunt uh, was the half-sister to John Thornton, who was one of the wealthiest men in Europe. Have you heard of Europe? It's a, whole, it's a, it's a continent. It's a continent, okay? So one of the wealthiest people on that continent, kind of a wealthy guy. So... Um, so this little boy goes to live with them, and the grandfather and the mother think that you know he's going to get this wonderful upbringing and stuff like that. Well, little did they know that they're sending him to a hotbed of sort of evangelicalism, Jesus freaks. His, his aunt and uncle were absolutely born-again, crazy, faith-filled Jesus freaks. Now, the grandfather and the mother, who were very socially proper, had no idea. that For them, that was like sending him to live with cannibals to eat human flesh and you know file his teeth. That was the same level. If they had known, they would have lost their minds. But they didn't know. So they send him off. And sure enough, the little boy, being sensitive and sort of looking for meaning in life, becomes a very serious Christian. And he was a very bright, uh, very sensitive um, child. And so he he sort of looked at the aunt and uncle kind of like mother and a father, and it was just a beautiful time in his life. When you read about it, it's very moving. But when the grandfather and the mother caught wind of this, they, they freaked out. They wanted you know, to deprogram him and stuff. So they went, uh, uh, and the mother sort of said, you know, that's enough of this, you're coming home. Because in those days, uh, anybody who was a serious Christian, uh, and serious was defined as taking it seriously. Uh, if you were a serious Christian on any level, you know, that was like not what you do. And you wouldn't think it, but it was true. The culture was intensely against serious Christian faith. Uh, even though I say they had, they had this patina. You know, they had the churches and they had the, the smells and bells and all that stuff. But if you actually looked into the theology, it was like, forget about it. It was, you know, status quo theology. And um, so Christians in those days, serious Christians were called Methodists. Have you heard of that term? I mean, now it's a whole denomination, right? That's when it started, was John Wesley and Charles Wesley, uh, you know, were preaching in the fields. George Whitfield uh, was a, um, a preacher in those days, would preach to thousands of people in the fields. And this was an outrage. This was like a scandal. This was, you know, the people uh, in power thought, what are you doing preaching in, in a field? You know, God would not have given us churches if he meant for us to preach uh, in the field, right? God didn't actually give us churches. We built that. You, you know that, right? Okay. <laughs> So, oh, you're, you're dropping. Um, so, there was this crazy ferment going on that the lower classes, you know, the people who really suffer when there's no good religion, right? When it's a really pagan secular culture. Uh, the worldview of pagan secular culture is if you're poor, sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and basically, 
Wilberforce, as I say, he was pulled away from the serious faith. His mother and grandfather were mortified, and they said, we're going to raise him. We want you to be worldly and, you know, go to card parties and enjoy your wealth and, you know, be a, um, a selfish, rich, wonderful uh, young man. And uh, he fought it for a while. But, I, you know, in, in, in the book that I wrote about this, I sort of compared it. It's like, it's like dragging Anne Frank to, like, a NASCAR thing or something like that, right? It's like saying, you know, you're so serious and so just have fun. Come on, we're going to go see The Rock in a cage match. And then uh, we're going to go see Jekyll and Hyde. And just don't get so serious on me here. Come on, Anne, let's have a good time, you know? You know, these little kids, they just get obsessed with these negative ideas, and we really need to have some fun. Let's go to a card party and stuff. And that was effectively what was going on here. It's like he had this budding social conscience, thinking about God, thinking about the poor, whatever. They're like, no, we're not going to go there. We don't have time to think about that stuff. Let's have some fun. So by the time he was like 14, 15, he had lost this faith that he had, which was serious. He had a serious faith. And then he went to Cambridge, and he just fell in with, you know, the people who... Um, you know, they, they did not really take life seriously. They had money, they had privileges, and they enjoyed them, and they were very selfish. It was a culture of selfishness, which we don't, we don't really understand because in our society, this whole idea of, like, helping the poor and all that stuff, that, that's, that's kind of who we are. Americans feel like, you know, if there's a problem, we send money and we do, we do good stuff. Like, we don't even think about that. But most cultures, you know, uh, if you don't have sort of a Christian base, this idea that we need to help those who are less fortunate... Um, they didn't help those who were less fortunate. So he lived this high life, this wonderful life. The culture, as I say, that he lived in, it was, it was secular, humanist, really, Unitarian at best. I mean, there was no actual like, Christian faith except among these lower classes. And the fruit of that, this is what we don't normally think about. Like we think, well, that's, that's good. You know? Well, it's, it's not good because what happens is you get the kind of uh, culture that you had in ancient Rome where if you're poor... That's too bad. Like, there's nobody to help you. The government doesn't say, like, hey, we need to help you. And the, and, but, the, but the private sector doesn't either. Because, like, all these quote-unquote Christians who aren't really Christians who go to church and, you know, do the fancy church thing, they don't help you either because they think, you know, it's, it's almost like an Eastern religious view, karma view. You know, like, you're there because you need to be there, and I'm not going to help you. You need to, 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 to deal with that. And it's really, I have to say, researching all this, it was, it was horrifying to, to realize that, when you think of, like, the crack epidemic in New York in the 80s, okay, when you have uh, people prostituting themselves uh, for crack, for money, whatever, like a whole culture that is so depraved and sad, you could just weep and you say, well, how can we help those people? What can we do? Well, in, in Wilberforce's day, in the 1780s, that kind of crack culture, okay, it, it was gin, it was not crack, but, but that had been going on for decades, not one decade, decades. And there was nobody like standing up and saying, you know, crack is whack, just say no. The concept didn't exist. It was kind of like, whatever, you know, you just stay there and don't, uh, don't do anything to threaten what we have going on here. We got a good thing going on here. You're poor, you stay there. We're just going to, uh, it was very, very harsh on crime, very interesting. Uh, people were not re- religion was kind of non-existent uh, because the previous century. Forgive me for this uh, historical stuff, but the previous century, England and a lot of Europe had seen what we would call the bad side of religion, which is kind of fake Christianity, where people are killing each other in the name of Christ and stuff. Right? There was a lot of that in the 17th century. So people don't swing to good Christianity. They always kind of swing all the way from religion into you know, brutal paganism and, 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 and secularism, and they don't care about the poor either. It's kind of like, it's crazy, but it's sort of 
it's the human race. It's history. If you, you, can, you can read up on it. There are books. But, um, so, so the idea of avoiding like bad religion, you know, instead of finding God and who he is and Jesus and what does Jesus say and about helping the poor and whatever, they just kind of bypassed that and went straight to, you know, kind of the decadent pagan worldview. And uh, so Wilberforce uh, was part of that upper class society. And if you've seen things like, you know, dangerous liaisons or whatever, the incredible decadence of the wealthiest classes is, is extraordinary. And it was a culture of selfishness. So they had all their money, and what, but they did not help the poor. There wasn't even an idea that I should donate money or do anything. It didn't even exist. It's like the so- idea of social conscience, which we assume exists. It didn't even exist. It's like he invented it. And um, so... The brutality of that culture was, was widespread and it was very sad. And Wilberforce became a very powerful politician in Parliament. He was like the senator from New York kind of level of he, – he, he vaulted at age 24. He was an incredibly powerful uh, politician. And he became uh, a very dear friend of William Pitt, the younger, who was the prime minister. So you talk about being in the catbird seat. I mean he was wealthy, powerful. Uh, at age – 25 or 26, he went on a trip to the Riviera. <laughs> the Riviera existed even then. It's amazing. Um, and uh, he invited a friend of his to go. You know, they were going to just have a blast. Uh, they didn't, he didn't work too hard. And um, the friend couldn't go, so he invited another friend. This guy who, there's no way to describe this man. His name was Isaac Milner, and he was one of the smartest people who have ever lived, okay? He, he, was the Luca- he had the Lucasian chair of mathematics at Cambridge University, which Isaac Newton uh, had that uh, chair, and Stephen Hawking, who you've heard of, I, most of you heard of, currently occupies that. In other words, the, you know, like one of the smartest people on the planet. It's like the plum academic post on the surface of the planet. I can't speak for subterranean stuff, but on the surface of the planet, academically, that's number one. And basically... <laughs> I know, I know. If you know a lot of, like, smart, you know, earth-dwelling gnomes or whatever, then, you know, you've got to factor that in. But if you factor those out, he's a big deal. So, uh, I didn't mean to get into gnomes. I apologize. It's very controversial, and I'm going to lose some people with that. But, um, so, so Wilberforce uh, f- uh, decides to go on this trip with this guy. He sort of doesn't know him very well, but uh, he goes on this trip with this guy who's, you know, one of the smartest people on the planet. He also was... And they didn't put any of this in the movie. And so I'm hoping they make another movie because there's so much stuff here. It's incredible. This guy was also like a giant. Like, I don't know if he was six foot eight and 380, but he was like, le- le- like that level of like people always talked about this huge. So he was like Andre the Giant and Stephen Hawking. Okay. And also he was rena- not only was like a math and chemistry freak. Okay. But he also was ordained. Okay. So he had the theology stuff down and we're not done. Uh, he was a... Sort of like a raconteur. I mean, anybody who studied literature, you think of Dr. Johnson, you know, one of these uh, incredible, you know, conversationalists and wits, you know, like a literary wit. Like I think of like a Dick Cavett or, or something. We don't have any, have any of those left, I guess, in the culture, which is bad. But um, vulgar is bad, right? And, um, but anyway, uh, he, this guy was also, in addition to all this other stuff, he was this outrageously witty conversationalist. Now imagine somebody who was like, you know, Andre the Giant, Stephen Hawking, and, you know, whatever, Dick Cavett. I can't think of anybody else right now. So he goes on a trip with this guy, and they start talking about theology. And lo and behold, Wilberforce slowly, was very intellectually honest, he started seeing, like, uh, uh uh-oh, I think uh, this Christianity stuff might be true, which is kind of a bummer, because I'm very wealthy, I'm having a good time, and... uh, 
I don't know, but but maybe it's not true. We don't know. We don't, we can't prove anything yet. You know. So he was kind of like you know. So they had this conversation, and it went on for weeks. Um, they there was it's a whole story, but but they had this conversation on this trip to the Riviera, and they would continue talking. Now imagine this. William Wilberforce was a genius. He was a genius. He was about this is true. He was about five foot two and like ninety nine pounds. I'm not kidding. He was tiny, tiny man talking to this vast giant. Okay, uh, for weeks about theology and stuff. And over the course of this time, more and more and more, he realized, son of a gun, I think it's true. This Christianity stuff is true. I don't want it to be. But it's like C.S. Lewis talks about the, the most reluctant convert in all of England. Or he talks about the search for God, like talking about the mouse's search for the cat. You know, it's like, I'm not, I really don't want to, I'd, I'd rather just live my life. Could he leave me alone? But somehow, something was torturing him, like, no, 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 no. It's true. You need to face it. You need to face it. And so, ultimately, in a kind of, Misery. He, he he realized that I, I have no choice. This this is true. I've turned my back on God. God is real. He died for me. He loves me. I've ignored him. I've lived for myself. He gave me all these intellectual gifts and all this money to help the poor and whatever. I have done nothing. I've just been selfish, and it's a whole culture of selfishness. So he came to this very dramatic conversion. Uh, and sort of wanted to, to, to leave the world and go to a monastery. He thought, like, how can I live in this high society of parliament and whatever, and I have to go and, and be alone. And fortunately, at that time, he spoke about his faith to two people. One was William Pitt, who was this brilliant prime minister at age 24. I, I know that's Don't try that if you're young. Don't become prime minister because it's just silly. But he was. And his father was the prime minister also, so he had a little uh, training wheels there. But basically... Uh, Wilberforce goes to talk to William Pitt, basically to tell him, like, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but I've become a Christian, and I need to, like, leave the world of politics, and I'm sorry. And Pitt was thinking, that's a bummer, because he's my best ally. He is the most brilliant debater who's ever existed, and now he's leaving, like, great, you know. So uh, Pitt wrote him a letter, and in the letter Pitt wrote, this is the quote, Surely the principles as well as the practice of Christianity are simple and lead not to meditation only, but to action. Interesting, right? He's basically saying, hold on a second. You talk about Christianity and it's true and whatever. Well, why can't you do that in Parliament? Why can't you bring your Christian values to bear here? Uh, and maybe abolish slavery, for example. There's kind of stuff to do, you know. A um, couple of things. And um, then uh, he went to visit another friend who is John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, I was mentioning before, who he hadn't seen since he was a little boy. And you can imagine Newton, the old man now, seeing this, this, this little boy that he loved who had come to serious faith and who had fallen away from faith, come back to faith and then come to John Newton. You can just imagine that scene. It's like a, um, where Pip comes back to old Joe in Great Expectations, this moving thing, you know, this little boy grown up. And um, so Newton, John Newton says to him, don't, don't go away and go into the ministry. How do you, it seems like God has raised you up to be a Christian, a real Christian, like a Jesus freak Christian in Parliament. You're, you're going to be such a fanatical Christian that you're going to actually believe like slavery is wrong. And uh, you're going to, maybe God has picked you to, to fight this fight, fight this battle. So uh, in 1787, uh, Wilberforce has been a Christian for about a year and a half or whatever. He realized that this is what God's called me to. And he wrote in his diary, um, uh, and Wilberforce, by the way, he doesn't know that I got a copy of his diary, but he doesn't need to know. Uh, it says, he wrote, these, these are the like 20 famous words. I know they're engraved in stones around the world here. This, he wrote, God Almighty has set before me 
two great objects. God Almighty has set before me two great objects. The suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Two things. The suppression of the slave trade means the abolition of the slave trade, which we don't have time to go into, but it was horrifying. And British people were rather ignorant. They did not know. I mean, they were ignorant of this aspect. Kind of like we are ignorant of a lot of stuff. We don't know what's going on right now that people can say, well, you know, you're living in America and you, you don't know that... You know, we, people live their lives. People are busy. The slave trade was a grotesque, satanic system. It was so evil you cannot imagine. And he said, God has set before me two great objects, the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, what that means, reformation of manners, doesn't mean, you know, I'm going to teach people not to eat peas off of a, a knife. What he really meant was the reformation of morals. It was a very decadent culture. It's like imagine if the crack epidemic in the 80s had gone on for 70 years and there were no social programs to say, like, let's see if we can help those people. Imagine if everybody in churches figured that's the way it is. We don't need to help. We're not going to go there and do soup kitchens and figure out. Come on, forget it. It's, uh, it's, it's why. It's the status quo. It's God's order that, that they live like that. It's karma, right? Well, if you encounter Jesus Christ, you see things that you wouldn't have seen before, right? You start, you know, the whole concept of being born again means that you, you now enter the kingdom of God and you see things and then you say, oh, I didn't know because where I live in my world, you know, it's what my neighbors are doing. But God says, no, no, no I've got a whole different vision for you. And the vision, when you look at me, you're going to see things that are going to challenge the world you live in. Number one, you're going to see that I created every human being in my image. Every human being in my image. And every human being needs to be treated like my child. You are to love every human being. You know, that was not like the hip thing to do in late 18th century England. They were not going with that. Well, Wilberforce had his mind blown. God came into his life in this miraculous way, and he started realizing... We are not doing this as a culture. So number one, uh, we need to end slavery, okay, and that he was going to do that through parliament. But then he wanted to do this whole thing, this world of vice and misery and squalor. The poor suffered. We cannot imagine how they suffered. And, you know, we, we, when you see that, you don't say, hey, we don't want to judge, you know, like they're just, the, you know, the prostitution and the drugs and whatever. That's like, uh, I don't want to be like moralistic or anything, you know. It's like, no, you, you say that those people don't want that. They, they want a, a helping hand to get them out of that. And if you really want to love them, you're going to love them enough to say, don't do that. Let's, let's, let's figure, how can we help you? Okay, that's what uh, God wants us to do. So Wilberforce was given this commission by God. And by God's grace, because you don't do this on your own, he was amazingly successful. This is what is crazy. When we think of the Victorian era, I think of Wilberforce as having created the Victorian era. Now, God did it through Wilberforce, but, but it, we don't have time, and, and hopefully in the book I unpack this stuff, but it is, when you know what England was like in the latter part of the 18th century, it was so brutal, as I say, there was slavery, prostit- 25% of all unmarried women were prostitutes. The average age of prostitutes was 16, the average age. You mathematicians can figure out that's a bad thing, right? It was nasty. It was na- I'm not even going into half of it. It was very nasty, and there was a culture of selfishness. Wilberforce said, we need to change this. We're going to change it by God's grace. And he 
gathered a group of people around him, also crazy Jesus freak fanatics who believe that, you know, we're made in the image of God, all that crazy religious stuff. And um, they were incredibly successful. And the entire 19th century, when you think of the Victorian era, now we're, we're kind of swung in the other way again. We're like Victorian era that's like really moralistic and stuff. Like, well, it's, it's better than, you know, people suffering in squalor. There was a sense of dignity and there was a, it's a, that's a whole history lesson. But, but Wilberforce was very, very uh, successful. God granted him success. And the abolition of slave trade happened in 1807, as I said, 200 years ago. And the abolition of slavery itself was in 1833, so they beat us by like 30 years, okay? And everyone who was involved in abolition was not only a Christian, but was a very serious Christian. And that kind of got me thinking, and it kind of got me feeling like, okay, God called them to do that. What is he calling us to do? Every human being is created in the image of God, okay? And most of you guys are human beings. In fact, I would say... I'm going to go on a limb and say, everybody here, you're all human beings. It means you're creating the image of God. God has a plan for you. He doesn't think of Wilberforce as above you. He thinks of Wilberforce as another human being that he called to do what he called to do. He created Wilberforce to do this. And so I say, what did God create me to do? What is God setting before me? And, and then I thought, so I want, to know, I want to know what that is. And maybe I won't know the way Wilberforce did. Maybe I won't write a 20-word, you know, what do they call it? vision statement, corporate vision statement. But what, what does God call me to do? And also, what are the blind spots in my culture? If that was an entire culture that could look at slavery and go like, well, that's just the way it is. What are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that are going on right around us that we just say, well, you know, that you can't change that or whatever? When you look at God, when you spend time with God, you start seeing things differently. And you start seeing that what everybody thinks is normal is not normal. God has a different plan. It's very important. So Wilberforce... He's a hero of mine because he helped those who suffered. He, t- he took his faith seriously. He was not a hypocrite. He was, uh, the more I read about him, I mean, to spend three months working on a book about him, three months, I mean, way more than three months, but writing it, I thought this was one of these things that we act like it can't exist anymore, but he was a really good man. You, re- you could read his diaries. You read what his friends write. You could read tons and tons and tons of stuff, and uh, it's, it's real. He was a good man. Because of God. He'd be the first to tell you, I'm not a good man. It's by the grace of God. And at the end of his life, after having accomplished all this stuff, he died four, t- four days after the emancipation of all slaves. He lived to see slavery end. Um, and there's so much else, as I, as I say. But basically, uh, I, I looked at that and I said, what is it that I want to do in my life? And how did he do what he did? And I came up with just a, just a couple of things. There's, there's, there's a lot. But I realized that a lot of times we are very shy uh, in our culture about we don't want to appear like moralistic or religious. Like we have a real phobia about that because we've seen how bad, how negative that can be, right? But I think that God was challenging me to say, okay, you know, you don't want to do the, the negative version of it, the, the sort of the puritanical, you know, okay, we, we all know what that looks like. But what is the good version of self-discipline or spiritual disciplines or whatever. What is the good version of that? Instead of throwing out the baby with the bathwater like they did in England, they threw out all of Christianity because they didn't want to be bad Christians, so they threw out Christianity and the poor suffered. I'm kind of throwing out the whole idea of self-discipline and morality. And what, what is the good version of that? What is God's version of that? And there were two things that Wilberforce did, which uh, I, I will challenge you all uh, as God speaks to your hearts. Uh, as I close, I will pray about this. But there were two things... That, that, that I thought, I don't do this. And Wilberforce was big on these two things. Number one was memorizing scripture. 
Now, that's a whole sermon, the importance of the word of God. What, why? Why is it important? And that, that's a whole, uh, maybe next time in, in two weeks, that would be uh, one of the things I'll talk about because that's, that's just, you know, that's, that's a series. Wilberforce memorized scripture, and, I mean, he, he memorized poetry, he, me- he memorized it, but it was like a discipline. He would set this as a discipline to memorize scripture. He memorized Psalm 119. Now, some of you guys are impressed by that because, you know, Psalm 119 is about the length of 15 psalms. It's like really, really, really long. And while walking home from Parliament, it was about a, a mile or so, he would recite it sometimes on his way home to 20. He memorized that. Now, you know, if you play Hamlet on the stage, you know, that's, that's a four-hour play. You're memorizing. But human beings can memorize amazing things. And I thought, this is not uh, part of the status quo of the world that I live in. People don't, like, memorize stuff. I thought, this is a cool thing. If he was able to do what he did... I want to do some of the things that, 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 that he did in his life that enabled him to be strong and to stand against the status quo that says slavery is cool. So he, he memorized scripture. So I said, I'm going to start memorizing scripture. Now, I have not done this yet, but I'm saying this to you guys. I'm, I'm going to do this, and I challenge you because scripture tells you God's point of view. So when you're walking around the world, I don't know if you, some of you guys suffer from depression, perhaps even now, but uh, if... I, I do. I mean, I really struggle with that. And when you memorize scripture, you could say, no, this is true. When, 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 when the world is speaking negativity and pain and hopelessness and whatever, and you can say no, and you, you have it inside you, you know. And, and I really think it's a lost discipline. So I wanna, I'm going to challenge myself and I challenge you uh, to memorize scripture. Find something. Find scriptures and memorize them. I guarantee you, you'll be thrilled you did. And the second thing is... The Sabbath, this is really old-fashioned. We've lost uh, in our culture this whole idea of the Sabbath. Wilberforce uh, lived at a time when they took that commandment, and it's weird, it's, a, it's one of the commandments, that the, keep the Sabbath holy. We don't even talk about that, we never think about that. And again, I thought, we don't, because we feel like, we're, well, you're going to be like negatively religious and be all weird. And we're gonna, okay, we, we don't want to be negative. But what is the positive? When God says, keep the Sabbath holy, he says that to bless us, not to bum us out, not to give us a boring Sunday. What does it mean? What does God mean when he says that? And uh, William Pitt, who, as I said, was the prime minister, he fought a duel on a Sunday. And Wilberforce, you know, dueling was part of this culture. Again, it was like this violent, brutal, whatever. And Wilberforce was so upset. But it's almost like he was just as upset of the fact that he did it on a Sunday. Um, but it's because there's, there was something in, in his mind, and in the mind of Christians historically. As I say, we've lost the sense of that, you know, because uh, I'm going to go to OTB right after this, you know. But <laughs> that was a joke. I'm joking. I'm going tomorrow. Um, so, uh, hey, it's my only vice. It's cool. It's cool. Um, so, but, but, but the point is that he had an idea of the Sabbath as holy, and I think that we have lost... It's one of those weird things, like I, I think, well, how could they tolerate slavery? How could they be so blind? I think, what, what are the things that I'm blind to? And I think this concept of holiness, of sacredness, whatever, that's like off. We don't, we don't go there. And I think, what, is the, what does God say about that? Okay, we know the bad version. What does God say? So I want to challenge myself, and I challenge you, on the Sabbath, on Sunday, pick something. I don't know what it is. It can't be attending church, because you already do that. Uh, Pick something to make this day special, to give this day to God. I don't know what that is. Wilberforce would spend his entire day doing all kinds of stuff. It was, it's really an extraordinary thing. But 
he almost single-handedly revived the idea of families spending Sundays together. Did you know that before Wilberforce, before this fanatical Christian named Wilberforce, that whole idea didn't exist. Families didn't, I mean, we, again, we take that for granted. Well, of course, you know, we have barbecues, whatever. In a way, that's a whole history lesson as well. So there's something really powerful about that. And uh, I challenge you to think about something on the Sabbath, on Sunday. What am I going to do? And do it as an offering to God and say, Lord, I don't even know why I'm doing this, but I'm doing this because your commandment says keep the Sabbath holy. Show me what you want me to do. I have, I have no idea. I don't, and, and I don't know. So, so that's something that I want to challenge you. So to memorize a scripture, do something on the Sabbath. Now, if you memorize scripture on the Sabbath, that's cheating because that's two things in one. You've got to do two separate, separate things. But I want to I I challenge you because I really believe that if we do some of the things that some of these incredible people of faith in the past have done, who have done things like abolish slavery, uh, we will be able to do powerful things. What has God called us to do with our lives? Life is short. What are we going to do? Um, so let me... Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. Lord, we are aware that we have blind spots just as the people 200 years ago, they looked the other way when it came to slavery. They looked the other way when there was the suffering of the poor. Lord, show us what are we looking the other way to that you say, look at this, change this. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus, by your spirit, to touch every person in this room and to show us what we have been looking away from, that you are saying, I've called you to do something about this. Father, show us why you made us, Lord. Each person here, we, we, we have gifts that you have given us for your purposes. Lord, show us what you want us to accomplish for you in your power. And Lord, I pray that you would also show every person here what scriptures, you would have them memorize to strengthen them in their daily walk, that they would have more joy and more peace and more love for their neighbor. And Lord, I ask you to show us individually as well, what would you have us do on your day, on the Sabbath? What, what, it, what does that mean? Show us something, each person individually, that you would call us to do on your day. And Lord, I ask you to bless every person here and help us to know who we are in your eyes, not in the eyes of this world, but in your eyes, who are we to you and what did you make us for? Father, bless us with that knowledge and bless us to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you.